0: listeners and welcome to the When in Spain show. I'm your host Paul Birch and as I talk to you I'm standing outside number 13 Huerta del Sol smack bang in the centre of Madrid. Um, you can probably hear a lot of hustle and bustle it's a Friday lunchtime nearly. And as I'm talking to you I'm looking at a huge window display of Abanicos abanicos are the typical handheld fan that you might see ladies wafting to keep cool when the mercury pops and the shop is called Casa de Diego and it's a shop that specializes in fans and umbrellas as well actually Uh, it was founded back in 1823 and it's one of the most famous places in Madrid uh, to buy abanicos or fans So you might be asking why am i here talking about fans when it's only the end of march it's not uh, hot yet well coming up in this episode of when in spain i'm going to be talking about typical spanish products so let's imagine uh, you're going to make a shopping list of products or items to give to someone who had never been to spain before what would you be chucking in your shopping basket well i'm going to look at a list of products that scream spain and also I'm going to be looking at some of lesser known bits and pieces as well um, that I think are, are super Spanish. So I'm going to make a few stops around Madrid uh, looking at various products and items. And along the way I'll be looking at the history and the story behind some of the most typical Spanish products as well. Um, just to note say a big thank you to all of the when in spain facebook group members who offered their suggestions for this episode and so i've drawn up a list of 16 spanish products which are unmistakably spanish and just to say they are in no particular order we've got 16 items on the shopping list um i'm not going to be buying them (laughs) but 16 items on the list and you will notice by the end of the podcast that there are some very obvious ones that i haven't included So number one on our shopping list for typical Spanish items, yes, fans. Um, In its heyday, the folding fan was Spain's must-have accessory. By the early 19th century, it was like the equivalent of the, the little designer handbag, although its origin goes back way before that. The fan's origin is thought to date back to the 15th century when Portuguese traders brought fans back from their travels as far as China and Korea. Uh, By the 18th century, uh, now we're moving across to France, during France's reign of Louis the 14th and Louis the 15th, fans became not only practical but a luxury item, uh, often made with expensive Italian cloths precious stones and some were even embroidered with gold but the first Spanish fans uh, were made in Spain um, by craftsmen in the 17th century and even some renowned painters were hired to hand paint them for the Spanish nobility and you can see early examples of these fans uh, in a famous painting by Velázquez called La Dama del Abanico. Uh, The Dame of the Fan and that dates back to around 1635. So yeah originally they were reserved for the elite but by the 19th century uh, they had become an essential everyday accessory for all Spanish women and I think it's true today I would say probably most Spanish uh, women uh, own at least one fan and they are still widely used. I used to think before I moved to Spain that these brightly colored uh, fans were really just sort of tourist, tourist items. Things that people bought to take back home. I've noticed it's quite a common sight to see women using fans to keep cool. So they're still an everyday item, very popular here in Spain. There's a whole code using fans uh, to communi- as a way of kind of semaphore I suppose of, of communicating. Single ladies went out dancing uh, back in those days they weren't allowed to meet boys on their own so they were often accompanied by a chaperone or a member of the family would be at their side to make sure they were behaving themselves and and in order to communicate with with young men They developed a secret language uh, using their fans so depending how they held their fan or how they moved their fan or how they tapped it or which uh, way around they were holding the fan they would communicate to uh, young men whether they were interested in them or not going back to the ones i'm looking at in the window now uh, really elaborately hand painted uh, really beautiful very colorful Um, and quite expensive actually. Um, The ones I'm looking at here in the window are all around the 45-50 euro mark and uh, there are some that are much more expensive, uh, 150, uh, even going up to around 200 euros. So number two on the shopping list, Churros churros and chocolate and also their uh, chubbier cousin the porra. Uh, Many of you will know what a churro is. It is a batter, donut-like batter, which is uh, forced through a little mold into sticks and then deep-fried, often sprinkled with sugar and sometimes cinnamon and uh, then dipped in a really thick cup of hot chocolate. Um, As I'm talking to you now I'm just outside probably the most famous and very touristy uh, Chocolateria San Gines. San Gines is a short walk from uh, La Puerta del Sol and it dates back to 1894. I'm just stood outside has a large terrace uh, space there are people sitting outside enjoying chorros and chocolate uh, at the moment and you can probably hear the clatter of uh, cups and saucers uh, just inside I'm just standing outside the door now. Now I suppose in the UK after a heavy night drinking a boozy night out on the town we normally finish the night off with a kebab or some chips. Uh, in Spain uh, more common is churros y chocolate so when it's three four five o'clock in the morning uh, people will quite often make a little stop off on the way home to grab a hot chocolate and some churros and it's also a common thing to eat as a winter warmer. Um, The origin of uh, churros is is not very clear. One theory suggests that they were brought to Europe uh, again from China by the Portuguese. Portuguese were renowned for sailing around the Orient and um, as they returned from the Ming dynasty uh, in China back to Portugal they brought with them new culinary techniques including a kind of dough which in China is known as yu tiao. so they were brought back to Portugal and this new kind of pastry spread across the Iberian Peninsula across Spain and it was modified various times one of the modifications was to extrude this doughnut like dough through a star-shaped mold And to turn it into thin sticks uh, which are then fried as I said. Another theory is that the churro was made by Spanish shepherds um, as a substitute for fresh bakery goods and a churro paste was easy to make and fry in open uh, spaces, open fires in mountainous regions. Number three on our shopping list of typical Spanish items and products. Uh, well, I'm standing just outside a shop, which is called an Alpargateria. Alpargateria. And it's called Casa Hernán. Casa Hernán, Quite near to Plaza Mayor. And in the window, dozens, if not hundreds, in fact. Of canvas shoes, which I think most of us know as espadrilles, uh, the woven sole with a colored canvas top stitched into it. Now, the existence of this kind of shoe actually dates back in Europe uh, as far as around the 1320s, uh, where it's documented actually in some Catalan literature. Now, the term espadrille, as indeed it sounds, is French. But it actually derives from the word in the occitan language which comes from Espartenya in catalan and in spanish alpargata and espartenia in spanish so both the Espartenya in catalan and the espartenia in spanish refer to a type of shoe made with esparto which is a kind of tough wiry Mediterranean grass uh, which is also used for making uh, rope Um, and the Basque region it's known as Espartina and in the same very same shop here where I'm looking now apart from the shoes they also have woven baskets uh, as well and little woven items um, apart from the shoes Now espadrilles, as we know them, have strong roots also in the Basque culture. Uh, They were worn by pretty much everyone from the King of Aragon's infantry to mine workers and indeed priests. And in addition to being worn by soldiers and labourers, espadrilles were also the kind of go-to shoes for the Catalan national dance called the sardana. Uh, Dancers wore a, a very specific type of espadrilles. Uh, with ribbons that then uh, were tied up around the ankles. So the origins, uh, it's a little bit uh, misty, but really the origins of the espadrille uh, come from northern Spain, from Catalonia, uh, southern France and uh, indeed the Basque region as well. And they're hugely popular today. I've got a couple of pairs, really useful for when you're going to the beach. They seem to have made a bit of a comeback in fashion. It's quite common to see men and women wearing them uh, during the summer months. And they've been modified over the years with platform soles being attached to them to make wedges. The most well-known Spanish manufacturer uh, of espadrilles is called Castaner. As I'm looking in the window now, uh, there are a huge array of colors, uh, stripes, red, blue, green, orange, yellow. They're very summery looking. Some of them have got open toes. Uh, Some of them are more of a sandal version. Some of them them have got ribbons, uh, which uh, tie up around the ankle. And very affordable. Uh, There are pairs of Escadrilles here going for around 10 euros. Uh, right up to around 60 euros for a pair of wedges Hola, buenas No, nada más, So I just dashed into a grocery store to make a quick purchase as you just heard and even though I have a sweet tooth this is not something that I really ever buy but there's something that you see absolutely everywhere uh, in Spanish grocery shops, supermarkets, uh, newspaper stands, anywhere where they sell confectionery. What is it? Yes, it is the Chupa Chups lolly. I've just grabbed one from the stand on the counter, strawberry flavor in a pink wrapper on a white plastic stick. This is a Spanish brand uh, now found all over the world. It was founded in 1958 by a guy called Enric Bernat. And the name of the brand uh, Chupa Chups comes from the Spanish verb chupar meaning to suck. Apparently Bernat got the idea of his lollipops from uh, his hands getting sticky from melting sweets and also the fact that children used to get in a real mess with sweets and so he decided to make these sweets more practical and uh, more appealing to children and their parents. He developed a Hard suite, which originally had a small metal fork stuck into it. Uh, over time, these became wooden sticks, and I don't know, sometime in the 1960s, I think it was, they changed the stick to a plastic stick, which they still are today. One of his marketing ploys was that all shopkeepers should uh, display the lollipops on a stand on the counter within reach of children's hands bit of clever marketing there instead of behind-the-counter where sweets were usually kept. Another interesting little factette about Chupa Chups lollies. The current Chupa Chups logo was designed in 1969 by the artist Salvador Dali. Salvador Dali who designed the famous daisy-shaped logo. It's a yellow and red logo. Apparently he designed it in less than one hour drawing it on a napkin and an exchange received a fairly hefty sum of money. Uh, Nowadays four billion Chupa Chups lollies are sold uh, each year in around 150 countries. The company has some 2,000 employees and it makes 90% of its sales overseas so not in Spain and amazingly has a turnover of half a billion euros a year. Yeah, and also another little fact: Chupa Chups was apparently the first candy consumed in space. Uh, the Russian factory provided lollipops to the crew of the Mir space station. Number five on a shopping list, and probably one of the most mundane items to be on any shopping list as well, but super common in Spain. And I think probably every household in Spain has uh, one of these. Uh, Yes, a mop and bucket, a mop and bucket. Uh, Yeah, mopping the floors in Spain is something of a a national obsession. Where I'm from back in the UK, pretty much all houses are carpeted, wall-to-wall carpets. Uh, A mop and bucket is not really something uh, most households tend to have maybe a vacuum cleaner is more common but of course most houses and apartments in spain have tiled floors or parquet floors or wooden floors and uh, a mop and bucket is essential for keeping it clean so the mop and bucket yeah apparently this is classed as a spanish invention and invented by manuel Jalon corominas who was born in logroño in the north of spain and uh, well, he was an engineer. He studied uh, aeronautical engineering in Madrid, here in Madrid, and he, uh, he spent some time working in the USA and other parts of Europe. And for a while, he was an officer in the Spanish Air Force as well. Uh, apparently, during a stay in the United States, he observed how aircraft hangers were cleaned using a flat mop and a bucket with rollers. So, once he got back to Spain, he decided to launch... Uh, the manufacture of his own version of the mop in Spain and he subsequently founded a company in 1958 called Rodex which took out numerous patents and also adopted the brand name Rodex Uh, He eventually persuaded Catalan entrepreneurs to invest in his business and he remained the chief executive for the company for over 30 years. And he ended up exporting his mops all around the world to more than 40 countries. And he claimed that his bucket with rollers and uh, and the mop improved the quality of life in Spanish homes and uh, superseded the traditional way of cleaning the floor on your hands and knees so famous for saving a lot of people a lot of backache so number six on the shopping list uh well no spanish shopping list would be complete without jamon so i've just ducked into a delicatessen called ferpal uh, which happens to sell plenty of jamon along with cheese and sandwiches also has a little bar inside as well family-run business opened in 1971 uh, when you walk in the first thing that hits you is the smell of well jamon and the smell of cheese uh, on the wall they've got numerous uh, dozen uh, legs <laughs> of ham and patas. Of all different varieties and qualities and then below the legs of ham hanging on a wall there is a counter cafe. Where they are selling it sliced up along with chorizo and lots of other fiambres which is like cured meats and sausages now the spanish take ham on very seriously it's uh, probably the most famous spanish delicacy uh, that there is And the finest type of jamón is jamón ibérico and specifically jamón ibérico de bellota. Bellota means acorn. So these are uh, pigs which are fed only on acorns. Uh, So this particular variety of jamón is the most expensive and the pigs are fed are free-range and they roam around areas of land called dehesas. Dehesas are oak forests where they forage for acorns, totally free. And most of these dessas are along the border between Spain and Portugal. Uh, This particular breed of pig is also known as pata negra, or at least the jamon is known as pata negra, which means the black hoof or the black trotter. And indeed they do have black hoofs. And where I'm standing now looking up at the wall at all of these legs of hammer hanging up, uh, all of them have got black hoofs. So they are the finest quality. The most common breed of pig actually have white hoofs. Now the diet of acorns only is said to have a significant effect on the flavor of the meat which is absolutely true. The the taste and the consistency or the texture of pata negra or jabón ibérico de bellota is like butter. It melts in your mouth. It has these fine veins of fat running through it. Absolutely wonderful. Uh, Really delicious. Uh, It's cured for uh, 36 months. The grade of jamon iberico is divided into black label, which is 100% iberico de bellota, 100% acorn fed, and it's produced from the pure bred Iberian breed of pigs. And then you have red label, jamon iberico de bellota, which comes from free range pigs, um, but they are not pure red. And you will find that when you look on uh, the labels of the jamon, it will give the percentage. Of the Iberian breed ancestry uh, which by law has to be specified on the label Uh, the next grade down is called jamon iberico febo de campo campo. Uh, this is from pigs that have been pastured and fed a combination of acorns and grain so these pigs have not been fed only acorns And this variety carries a green label. Now the third type is from pigs that are only fed grain, 100% 100 grain, and are not fed acorns. And this is cured for around 24 months. And this has a white label. Finally, we have Serrano ham. Uh, Whenever you come to Spain, you will always see uh, these two categories of ham. jamón Iberico and jamón Serrano. Uh, Serrano meaning literally from the Sierra or from the mountain range and this is a type of dry cured Spanish ham which comes from lots of different varieties of pigs other than those made with the black Iberian breed of pig. So El Jamón rounds off part one of this episode. I'd just like to take a little break and make a few announcements. When in Spain also has a presence on all of the usual social media hangouts. On Twitter, on Instagram if you'd like to see photos which accompany the podcast episodes. I'm also on Twitter if you'd like to tweet me and follow When in Spain on Twitter. And recently I started a YouTube channel as well where I endeavour to make video versions of the podcast episodes. And indeed I'll be making a video episode of this podcast as well where you'll actually get to see some of the products and not just hear me talking about them. When in Spain on YouTube please head over and subscribe if you'd like to get in touch with me directly please fire off an email to wheninspain one at outlook.com that's wheninspain in one at outlook.com and when in spain is also on facebook we have a active facebook group with around 350 members at the moment new members joining every day uh, across to Facebook, find the When in Spain Facebook page and through the page hit join When in Spain Facebook group. Totally free if you would like to socialize with other Spain fans, if you'd like to share any of your thoughts and ideas about Spain and Spanish culture, if you'd like to share any photographs, articles, points of view, that is the place to do it. So let's crack on with our shopping list. I've got 10 more Spanish products to bring you. Uh, number seven on the list: aceite. Aceite. Aceite de oliva. Olive oil, of course, that cherished and healthy staple of the Mediterranean diet. Olive oil. Uh, salads, toasts, fried dishes, to beauty products or health supplements. No Spanish kitchen is without a bottle of this liquid gold. I've just popped into my local supermarket and I'm stood in the olive oil aisle. We have got uh, dozens and dozens of bottles, litre bottles, different varieties, different brands, different blends, extra virgin, regular. We've got metal containers of five litres that look like something you might store oil for your car in. But yeah, Spain is the largest producer of olive oil in the world and produces double the quantity uh, than in Italy and four times more than Greece. So as an estimate, it's that uh, Spain's olive oil production is around 1.3 million tonnes per year. 1.3 million tonnes of olive oil. Just imagine how many individual olives that is. The regions of Spain that uh, produce the most olive oil are Andalusia and in particular the tiny province of Jaén. Between them they produce 70% of Spain's olive oil. So a bit of history behind this liquid gold. Well Phoenicians uh, brought olive oil to Spain around 3,000 years ago. They also brought with them the extraction techniques. There are more than a hundred varieties of olive which are indigenous to Spain and there are more than 300 million olive trees in Spain and some of the oldest olive trees in the world uh, are in fact in Spain with the average life span of a Spanish olive tree at around 500 years and many reaching incredibly 2,000 years of age. I wish I was bringing this part of the episode to you in a beautiful sun-drenched olive grove. Unfortunately I'm in a supermarket aisle. Next one on our list, pipas. Pipas are sunflower seeds. For me there isn't really much that is more Spanish than a group of friends sharing a bag of uh, pipas or sunflower seeds whether they're at some kind of parade, uh, a feria, uh, a picnic or a sporting event, quite common to walk around uh, streets in Madrid and you'll see a little pile of uh, stripy black and white sunflower seed shells on the floor where someone has obviously been standing for a while, probably chatting with someone. and eating their pipas really common in spain i'm just, uh, just looking now but a bag of piponazo so super big <laughs> really big pipas here they are quite often uh, baked or cooked i'm not sure if they're cooked with, roasted with salt and they have uh, they're quite salty uh, now in spain you get lots of different varieties you get spicy pipas uh, and other flavors as well there's a bit of a trick to opening them um, every Spanish person I've ever met has a perfect has, has, has mastered the technique of cracking open the shell whilst it's in the mouth between the teeth, uh, extracting the seed inside and uh, spitting out or disposing of the shell all in one swift maneuver without much trouble. For me I'm still learning. I think being able to open a pipa effortlessly uh, should be, uh, become part of a test of Spanishness. Maybe it should be on the citizenship test. Number nine on the shopping list, wine. El vino, el vino. My God, do they produce a lot of wine in Spain. And on my shopping list for number nine, I'm also going to include in this, Sherry, Tinto de Verano, and Vermouth. Spain is the top exporter of wine in the world. Uh, In 2014, Spain exported 22.8 million hectoliters with the majority of it actually going to france so that's kind of curious Um, the top exporter it was the third largest producer of wine behind france and italy so it's the third largest producer of wine in the world after france and italy at number two uh, with 42 million hectolitres produced. I'm not quite sure how much a hectolitre is really. Uh, I I'm try, can't really envisage a hectolitre but a very large glass at least. Most people think of Rioja internationally when they think of Spanish wine and I certainly used to when I lived in the UK. For me Spanish wine meant Rioja, a really heavy red wine. Um, but it's not true actually. Um, but actually in Spain Uh, the top area for the volume produced is actually Castilla Mancha which is very close to where I am now in the capital in Madrid it's a region just near to Madrid Um, but actually there are over 400 different grape varieties in Spain Uh, the bulk of the production comes from Tempranillo, Garnacha, Monastrell, Albariño, Palomino, Airen, Macabeo, uh, uh, Parallada and Charello I'm in the wine aisle in my supermarket. We've got uh, a whole area dedicated to Rivera del Duero. We've got a whole area dedicated to Castilla La Mancha, Aragón, uh, then we've got white wines, Verdejo, uh, lots and lots of Verdejo. We've got sparkling wines from uh, Catalonia, uh, Cava. In short, there is a lot of wine. Vermouth very common aperitif uh, to drink on a Sunday afternoon is very common in Spain, often served in bars from a tap. You could also buy it by the bottle as well. Important to mention sherry, jerez or vino fino from uh, down in Andalusia. Uh, A fortified uh, aged wine a very complicated process behind making it again this is something we could dedicate an entire episode to which I hope to do in the very near future and just while we're talking about wine Tinto de Verano uh, summer red wine very common uh, in summer to drink this sangria is really for tourists I wouldn't say that sangria is widely drunk in Spain, but the uh, closest equivalent, which, yes, is very, very popular, is uh, Tinto de Verano, uh, summer red wine. It's red wine mixed with a light flavored lemonade, it's a sparkling lemonade called Casera. Uh, Again a very typical Spanish brand. Casera it's kind of like lemonade but it has a very subtle lemon flavor to it. It's more like soda water I would say. Ice cubes and a slice of lemon. So very common drink in bars in Spain in the summer. So I've just walked over to the cheese counter in the supermarket. Now there are uh, dozens and dozens of amazing Spanish cheeses. I'm going to pick my favourite and that noise you can hear is the uh, on slicer, the meat slicer in the supermarket which the guy is cleaning. But yeah there are dozens of amazing Spanish cheeses Um, but I've chosen manchego because it's probably the most typical Spanish cheese which is known outside of Spain Um, it's a Spanish cheese which is typical to the area around uh, Madrid and well I absolutely love it it's delicious manchego cheese there are lots of other types of cheese of uh, hard cheeses Uh, there are also blue cheeses uh, roquefort um, and uh, the very very strong cabrales from the north of spain absolutely delicious but i'm going to go with manchego for my shopping list it comes from uh, the la mancha region of spain hence the name made from uh, the milk of sheep from the manchego breed and to be classed as manchego it needs to be uh, produced in the provinces of albacete ciudad real cuenca and Toledo all in the La Mancha region uh, it has to be made to be classed as a Manchego uh, from the whole milk of sheep from the Manchega breed as I said and they are all raised on registered uh, farms within that designated area the aging process well the cheese has to have been aged for a minimum of 60 days and a maximum of two years Number 11 on the shopping list and this is something that is very Spanish uh, for me. Maybe not very well known outside of Spain but if you spend uh, a decent amount of time or if you come to live here you will quickly realize that this is uh, a very well known brand and uh, product indeed. Cola Cow, Cola cow. Yes, for those of you in Spain already, this needs no introduction. Uh, for the rest of the world, well, meet uh, Spain's Breakfast of Champions, or maybe for children and teenagers. Cola Cow. Um, well, for anyone familiar with Nesquik, it's pretty similar. Uh, it's a, a chocolate powder which is mixed with cold or usually hot milk dissolved and drunk as a kind of uh, chocolate drink. I really like it. Um, I'm not quite sure how uh, healthy it is. For many people they have it for a a little uh, drink at breakfast with a pastry or they might have it uh, as a merienda, an afternoon snack with biscuits or a pastry and I've actually seen adults uh, and some of my friends ordering it in bars in uh, in Spain uh, instead of having a cup of coffee yeah, the waiter they will order a cola cow and the waiter will deliver you a cup of hot milk and a little yellow sachet of cola cow chocolate powder on the side it's been around for a long time it's got this unmistakable yellow packaging yellow uh, jar with a picture of Uh, well look, look like African coconut farmers I suppose and palm trees. It was actually launched back in 1946 it's also quite well known I suppose because of this Cola cow song which was used to promote the product in 1952 which has gone through various reincarnations and uh, I think one of its first verses is remembered because it says Yo soy aquel negrito del Africa tropical que cultivando cantaba la cancion del Cola cow. That translates as I am the little black guy from tropical Africa who sang the Cola cow song while cultivating. Slightly Controversial, maybe these days in Spain and uh, yeah maybe not very politically correct but nonetheless any Spanish person will immediately know what you're talking about if you mention those lyrics. Number 12 on the list and it really needs very little introduction tortilla or spanish omelette big question should it contain onion or not people are quite divided on this most of my spanish friends say not that it should never contain onion just potatoes and egg absolutely delicious a staple tapa of many uh, tapas bar and uh, even though i'm in a supermarket believe it or not you can actually buy ready-made tortilla in the chilled section of the supermarket, uh, and you can slam it in the microwave and heat it up. Um, I wouldn't recommend it, I have tried it once or twice. Uh, it's not great, but um, as many of you will know, uh, Spanish tortilla, Spanish omelette comes in huge wedges uh, sometimes it can be several inches thick absolutely delicious slightly gooey in the center very often served on a slice of crusty bread uh, and uh, you can order it and you can order a, an entire tortilla in a bar with a group of friends but most commonly I think it's probably taken as a pincho a small slice uh, on top of a piece of crusty bread absolutely delicious number 13 on my list croquetas or croquettes a classic tapa in uh, any bar up and down the country i'm just in the congelados section of the supermarket and believe it or not you can buy bags of ready-made frozen croquetas it's one of my favorite tapas though this is a classic thing to order in a tapas bar for those of you who haven't experienced the absolute delicious wonder of croquetas it's a bechamel sauce mixed with uh, sometimes pieces of hamon, sometimes just with a bit of potato and sometimes other things. Uh, you can get croquetas which contain all sorts of uh, sometimes fish, bacalao uh, is quite common as well. Uh, all wrapped up and in a bechamel sauce, coated in breadcrumbs, and deep fried. Absolutely delicious. The origin of this succulent bite, which is uh, sometimes in a cylindrical form or, or a spherical form, is not actually Spanish but French. Yeah, the croquette originated in France back in 1898, the famous French chef uh, Escoffier the kind of founder of a classical French cuisine, started to write down the recipe for croquettes. It's a dish that emerged from really the need to take advantage of all food and not waste anything in times of scarcity. So the purpose of not, of not neglecting any meat left over or any fish from the previous day, the croquette was born. And really since the time of the 19th century has been a common snack in Spain. In fact, there's even a day given over to the croqueta. 16th of January is the Dia Internacional de la Croqueta, the International Croquette Day. Next one on my shopping list, this is fairly random and I don't know if many of you will have heard of it or even tried it before I've put it on the list because it's something that I've only ever seen in Spain and I've never found outside of Spain it's a soft drink called bitter cass or bitter cass cass is a brand of soft drinks they make orange Uh, and fizzy lemon drinks but this bitter comes in a bright red can with yellow lettering Um, and I've tried it a couple of times Um, and it's uh, it's it's a strange drink strangely um, enjoyable Um, very strong flavor so if you're not into strong flavors then I probably wouldn't recommend trying it I would say it's a kind of soft drink that has been designed for adult palates or maybe that you might think it's sort of alcoholic or contains alcohol but actually it doesn't. On the can it says uh, Único desde 1966, uh, the original from 1966. The idea for the recipe was taken from Italy and transformed and adapted for the Spanish market by somebody called Dr. Hausman. Dr. Hausman, who was a pharmacist and a professor at the University of Barcelona, and he was an expert in medicinal plants. Now, according to the recipe on the can, the drink contains 21 natural plant extracts, which help give it its unique flavor it's quite bitter it's quite sour and quite uh, what they might say citrica in spanish it's different i quite like it people uh, drink it in a long glass with ice cubes and a slice of lemon you can find it in bars as well as buying it in the supermarket Bittercas. so the next one on our shopping list is one of my all-time favorites salmorejo and gazpacho gazpacho and salmorejo uh, cold uh, soups Uh, absolutely delicious i'm more of a fan of salmorejo personally Uh, so they're very similar tomato garlic um, oil-based soups with salmorejo you add bread which gives it a much uh, thicker consistency um, did I mention garlic garlic as well whereas gazpacho is really uh, does not have any bread and uh, sometimes um, other ingredients are added as well such as uh, green or red peppers the history of it it's quite hard to pin down really uh, uh typically comes from Cordoba in the uh, in Andalucía and actually originally the dish was uh, white it did not have any tomato it was just made of garlic uh, oil and bread and uh, the final ingredient didn't actually reach the Iberian peninsula until the 15th century from America and that was the humble tomato an absolutely essential ingredient in so many Spanish dishes but yes uh, salmorejo before was white and sometimes you still see uh, dishes with white salmorejo. Uh, the idea of breaking down uh, garlic and bread and vinegar and oil in a in a mortar many people suggest that it dates back to uh, Roman soldiers with dishes known as pools or uh, soups which were made with bread and finally the last item on my shopping list uh, I'm gonna go and buy some actually because it's quite warm today and I really feel like some I absolutely love it horchata horchata when I first saw it I thought it was like a milkshake or made from milk no it's a uh, well it is a milky drink served cold in a glass with ice usually and it's actually uh, originates from the Valencian region of Spain from Valencia and it's made from well tiger nuts and they are called chufas, chufas. So ground tiger nuts, absolutely delicious. It's like a milky texture, maybe a bit like coconut milk, but it's got a kind of slightly gritty, grainy uh, consistency because of the ground tiger nuts. The name horchata actually comes from the Latin term ordeata, uh, which in turn comes from hordeum, which means barley we know it today as horchata and uh, uh, the recipe is spread across iberia uh, with the muslim conquest uh, and there are records dating back to the 13th century uh, records of horchata being made originally in valencia and it's true actually in valencia you will see it very commonly sold in the summer months on uh, street street vendors stalls particularly uh, by the beach so it's very common to see it there, and it's very common to see it written in Valenciano, language with an X, horchata with an X instead of a ch. So really the best horchata you can drink fresh in Valencia, but you can buy it in supermarkets right across Spain. So that will about do it for this episode on Spanish products. Thank you uh, all very much for listening. Gracias por escucharme. I'm sure many of you will be thinking, but well, what about paella and numerous other things I've left off the list. But I will leave the list there. Maybe in a future episode we can do a Spanish products items part two. But these were the ones that for me I either really like or, or intrigued me in some way or another. Don't forget, if you've enjoyed uh, listening to the When in Spain show, please subscribe to the podcast. And what really, really helps is uh, to give a rating wherever you listen, whichever platform you use to listen to the podcast. Five stars will be fantastic. And even more so, a little review, a one or two line review of the podcast and your thoughts about it. So with that, until the next episode, adios.